0: All right, it's good to be together tonight, isn't it? Kyle, thank you so much for that precious testimony, man. Probably great encouragement to the families here, especially the moms and dads that are praying for the salvation of their young people. And so, great, great example there. Well, go ahead and take your Bibles, and let's turn back to the text that we've been wading into on Sunday mornings the last couple of weeks. And this is uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, and this is the uh, clearest, uh, most helpful passage in all of the Word of God uh, on the subject of spiritual warfare, and this is going to be the, the, the subject uh, for this summer super study, and uh, we're calling it Battle Ready, Standing Your Ground in the Strength of the Lord. And so let's go ahead and read the text again and get it into our minds, and we'll talk about And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We'll stop there for tonight. Father, thank you for another privilege to open up your Word and spend time together um, having your Spirit illuminate our minds to understand what... uh, these verses, what these words, what these paragraphs mean and then how they apply to our lives. And so uh, we are desperately dependent upon your spirit now to accomplish uh, your work in our lives. And so pray that we'd be attentive uh, to you tonight and that you would help us to, to learn what you would have us to learn so we can be, you would have us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the greatest joys and privileges of my life was serving on the pastoral staff of Grace Community Church out in Los Angeles, California. And uh, if you know anything about that church, it's a very large church, it's a very well-known church, and it's in a very heavily populated area. And so every day, they assign one of the pastors to answer all the phone calls uh, from people around the country Who call in with a question, or they're seeking counsel, and then there's also people to be ministered to who walk in off the street looking for food or for money, and you you just never knew what might happen. And all the guys in in the student ministries department where I was serving had sort of a competition going on to see who received the the wildest phone call or the craziest walk-in or who gave the funniest counsel. In fact, one guy... um, got a call one day from a lady who claimed that her neighbor was shooting fireballs through a tunnel from his bedroom to her bedroom under their backyard. And, uh, and and these fireballs were coming up in her bedroom from this guy across the street, across the yard. I don't know, honestly, what I would have said, but the Lord was gracious to the guy who took that call. And the very first question that came to the mind was, ma'am, have you called the fire department? Seems like you need to, they need to be doing the work, not, not us, right? My favorite one, though, was when one of the other youth pastors got a call from a lady who wanted some advice regarding a very annoying and embarrassing problem. She said that Satan would pinch her in the rear end, and the only thing that she found that would get him to stop doing that was to eat peanut butter. I'm not making this up. This is real stuff, okay? It's not a joke. So apparently the devil doesn't like peanut butter. So so after talking with her for a long time about her problem, all of a sudden she said, ouch, over the phone. And my friend said, what's what's the matter? And she said, well, he's pinching me again. To which he said, well, we'll go get the peanut butter. (laughs) And maybe he closed in prayer with that. I'm not sure. But Sadly, in today's society, cases like these are not oddities. And there are many Christians who seem to have an excessive, unhealthy fascination with the devil and with demons. And there seems to be an an increased interest in this topic of spiritual warfare in the church today. And a growing number of of Christian leaders are organizing citywide prayer meetings to break the the strongholds of the evil spirits who are who are allegedly controlling that city. Missions agencies are devising strategies to confront demonic forces in particular countries around the world. Uh, you can go online and see some of these things. Spiritual warfare seminars and and summits are being held for the purpose of training Christians in the art of spiritual warfare, and you. Can imagine uh, the decor. Uh, it's all this boot camp, um, uh, uh, you know, decorations and camouflage and fatigues and 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 that's just the, the, you know everybody dresses up like that for these warfare seminars. And one of the things that is often taught in these kinds of contexts is that 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 we are to rebuke and bind Satan. And they teach you techniques for casting out demons. And uh, you may be familiar with with what's called deliverance ministries that specialize in exorcisms or, um, you know, they're becoming more and more popular. Probably the most well-known exorcist, uh, at least uh, professed exorcist is Bob Larson. That's a name you may be familiar with. Uh, He conducts live public exorcisms before capacity crowds. And his reasoning is he wants to make a public spectacle of Satan. And some of his teaching on demonology is theologically sound, but his practices contradict what he teaches, and he espouses some dangerous ideas derived from his alleged encounters with the supernatural. For instance, he believes that demons can and have duplicated his physical appearance, and that demons can also impregnate women. One of the things that I think, has influenced a lot of contemporary thinking when it comes to spiritual warfare is the best-selling novels by Frank Peretti called This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness. How many of you have heard of those books? Okay, yeah. So uh, probably the older crowd was raising their hand because they were published back in the, the, the mid to late 80s. And what these books were or, or are, they're a fictitious account of how territorial demons control a small town and how angels literally fight them with swords and shields, and the outcome of the battle is determined by the prayers of the believers in that town. Well, it makes for a good story, but unfortunately, many people accepted Paredes' fiction as fact, and they assumed that this was a true portrayal of how demons work, and how to wage spiritual warfare, and consequently, they've adopted this as their their view of the spirit world. David Powelson, who you may know from the um, biblical counseling movement, who is now with the Lord, he wrote a very helpful book called Power Encounters. And this is what he said, and I quote, he said, a great deal of fiction, superstition, Fantasy, nonsense, nuttiness, and downright heresy flourishes in the church under the guise of spiritual warfare in our time. For many people, the working worldview of spiritual warfare has the ring of a horror movie or fantasy novel instead of the sound of scripture. Clearly, the time is urgent to reclaim true spiritual warfare. And that's what I hope we'll do over the next six weeks this summer. As we look at this passage, the main passage in the Bible that addresses the subject of spiritual warfare, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Now, one of the initial observations that we should make from looking at these verses is there are no guidelines for exorcism. Do you see that anywhere? It's not there. And it's because the only people in the Bible who cast out demons were Christ and his apostles. He gave his apostles the authority uh, to cast out demons. He even actually gave a group of 70 of his followers at one point the ability to cast out demons, Luke chapter 10, verse 17. Um, The apostle Paul was able to cast out demons, and 2 Corinthians 12, 12 talks about the signs of an apostle. In other words, Christ gave his apostles the authority to cast out demons to substantiate their message. And to also authenticate their ministry. They were not establishing a pattern for us to follow. Just because now we're Jesus' disciples, we have the same authority. We should be casting out demons like Jesus and his disciples did. In fact, turn over to Acts 19 for a second. There's an interesting story here you may be familiar with. Acts 19 is the story of the sons of Skeva. Just listen to this. This is interesting. Acts 19, verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempting to name over those attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus saying I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the devil, or excuse me, and the evil spirit, this is verse 15, answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now I'm just saying... Uh, you may think, you know, that you have the authority, you know, in the name of Jesus to to cast out demons, but I think you're more likely to get a response like this. Like, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? And interesting, one guy beat up seven guys, which is just an an indication of the supernatural power that demons often have when they Uh, possess an individual, um, that they can overpower other people. And so uh, in light of this scary incident here in Acts 19, um, there's something else we should note in Ephesians chapter 6, that it says nothing about binding or rebuking Satan. Do you see that anywhere here in Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 20? Yeah, it's not there. And I point that out because I think like the sons of Sceva, many Christians naively believe they have the power to rebuke and bind Satan. You're like, okay, maybe we can't cast him out, but we can rebuke him and we can bind him. Well, first of all, as I mentioned on Sunday, the likelihood of you ever having a personal conversation with Satan is very slim. Since he's not omnipresent, he's not omniscient. So it'd be very unlikely that if you said satan i bind you or satan i rebuke you he would never even hear you cuz he's not there he's somewhere else furthermore the bible says that it is only christ who has the power to rebuke satan zechariah chapter 3 verse 1 then he showed me joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the lord and satan standing in his right hand to accuse him and the lord said to satan the lord rebuke you satan Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. Remember I mentioned the archangel Michael on Sunday? There was good angels and there was bad angels, right? There's angels and demons, right? So um, Michael is the archangel and and not even, in other words, maybe the most powerful angel, uh, the the leader of the angels, Um, not even... Michael dared to rebuke Satan. According to Jude verses 8 and 9, it says, yet in the same way these men, these men are referring to false teachers, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. So this is pretty typical of false teachers that they want to make you think that they can bind Satan and rebuke Satan. You may have seen it when uh, covid hit initially there was a a well-known false teacher up in Dallas that was on on video saying you know rebuking satan and rebuking covid and 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 claimed that covid would be gone in in a week and it lasted what how long it's still going right so he says that here, uh, Jude was talking about these men who revile angelic majesties. He said this, but Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce him against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. You think about the apostle Paul, who was tormented By a messenger of Satan, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that thorn in the flesh, whatever that was, it was a messenger of Satan. Um, It also says in 1 Thessalonians 2.18 that Satan had hindered Paul from going to certain places. He wanted to go back and see the Thessalonians and he said Satan hindered him. And yet, yet, in these contexts, in, in 2 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians 2, you never hear about Paul rebuking Satan or trying to bind Satan or pray against Satan. He simply entrusted himself to God and knew that God would take care of it. So rather than rebuke Satan, the Bible says that we're told to resist Satan. Big difference. Big difference between rebuking Satan and resisting Satan. James chapter 4, verse 7. James said, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But what does it say? Resist him, firm in your faith. And that's exactly what Paul said here in Ephesians chapter 6. Three times. He said to stand firm, verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm, verse 13, therefore take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to, here it is, resist, not rebuke, resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm and then once more in verse 14, stand firm therefore. So... I think it's important for us to notice here that that Paul was not encouraging us to engage Satan in combat. He, He was not calling on us to attack Satan and try to defeat Satan and make some public spectacle of Satan. Why? Because Christ has already conquered Satan when he died and rose again, amen? He's a defeated foe. And so now we just need to solely rely on Christ's strength and regularly wear the protective gear that we get issued the moment we defect from Satan's army and we surrender our lives to Christ and we commit ourselves to be a soldier of Christ. And that armor protects us from Satan's attacks and enables us to to stand our ground. And again, notice twice he says, Put on the full armor of God. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God. Verse 13, take up the full armor of God. And if you remember, when Paul wrote this letter, he was in Rome under house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier. We know that. Look at verse 20. It says, for which I'm an ambassador in what? Chains. Chains. So here was Paul, right, writing this letter, and he's looking over at this guy, and he may not have had all of his battle gear on at that moment, but he had seen enough Roman soldiers walking around in Rome. He knew what this guy would look like if he had his whole, you know, full armor on. And so he used that as, a, as the armor worn by a Roman soldier to illustrate the armor of a Christian soldier. And so he described the six pieces of a Roman soldier's armor and how they correspond to the spiritual armor of a believer. And verse 13 is where we left off on Sunday, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist an evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So verse 13 really summarizes what he's already said in chapters, excuse me, verses 11 and 12 there. Um, in other words, since we have such a powerful enemy who is bent on the destruction of our souls, we need to take up the full armor of God. That's a military term describing the final step, if you will, that a soldier would, would take before the battle started. He would, he would suit up for war. And, and, and the language that Paul used here denotes a sense of urgency, urgency. This demands immediate action. In other words, don't waste your time. Do it right now. This is not a game. This is a war. You don't want to get caught without your armor on. And I think we need to understand that we are never out of reach of satanic forces, and so we must live, sleep, eat, breathe with our armor on. Because whether you're hanging out at the house or you're at work or you're out in the sports court or on the field or at the mall or at a restaurant or at the beach or at a ball game or at the grocery store or on your school bus or in your classroom, um, even when you're on vacation, you, you can never take a vacation away from Satan and his demons. Can you imagine... Running across a battlefield in a t-shirt and shorts. Just think about that, right? There's a battlefield right here, and there's just bombs going off and missiles getting shot and guns and everything, and you think, oh, I think this will be fun. I'm just going to try to run across here in my t-shirt and shorts. How do you think that's going to go? Unprotected, right? Unprepared, unarmed. How long do you think you'll survive running around out there in the battlefield? With T-shirt and shorts. William Gurnall, who's a, a Puritan who wrote uh, the book I mentioned a couple weeks ago uh, on the armor of God, it's called The Christian Complete Armor, it's just a massive exposition of uh, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. He said this, if by negligence or choice we fail to put on God's armor and rush naked into battle, we sign our own death certificate. You hear that? If by negligence or choice, we failed to put on God's armor and we rush naked into battle, we sign our own death certificate. So he says, hey, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day. You say, what's the evil day? Is that some day in the future? No, that's any day when evil comes upon you. When Satan assaults you with some violent temptation or some intense trial and you feel like you're going to be overcome by the temptation, overwhelmed by the trial. So you'll be ready for that day and having done everything to stand. In other words, after making all the necessary preparations, you're, you're fully equipped, you're properly armed, you're, you're ready to resist and stand your ground against the latest attack of Satan. In other words, he's giving you a promise of victory here. That if you take up the full armor of God, you'll be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, you're going to be left standing there. As the the smoke, uh, you know, as the dust settles and as the smoke clears, right? And there's carnage all over the battlefield, you'll still be standing. You'll be the one guy left standing. If you do what Paul tells us to do here. Now, the problem is, or the challenge is, Paul was speaking metaphorically here or figuratively. And so I've said this already, but the armor of God tends to be a nebulous or mystical concept. Even for those of us who recognize and want to avoid all the wackiness out there associated with spiritual warfare, we're kind of left with with maybe just something theoretical or or maybe experiential uh, when it comes to how we think about God's armor. I mean, it sounds cool, And it's fun to make at kids' camp, right, Uh, to make a a, a suit of armor. I mean, it it, it looks cool, sounds cool, um, but it isn't very clear. Uh, It's poetical, but it's not very practical. So what do these pieces of armor actually represent in our lives? And, And how do we practically put them on? I mean, is this something we have to do every morning when we wake up, where we, we symbolically put on every piece of armor? Uh, do we pray it on? I mean, how does this all work? Well, that's, those are the questions that I want to try to answer uh, as we go through uh, these six pieces of armor. So tonight, we're going to look at the belt of truth, the belt of truth. So notice he says there in verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Now that might sound like funny language, having girded your loins with truth. We don't use that expression um, in, in our day and age, but, but we need to understand that the first thing a soldier would do when suiting up for battle was to put on his belt, And this was a a large piece of leather that that he would strap around his waist to hold his garments together and really serve as a place to attach the breastplate and also to hang his sword. And so at the end of the day, everything was somehow connected to the belt. It was hooked to the belt. It kind of held the rest of the armor together. So this was central. This was critical. And it was also where the soldier would tuck the corners of his tunic Because underneath the armor, soldiers would wear this large tunic that would hang loosely over their body. And uh, when they were just kind of hanging out, it was fine to have it kind of flowing down like a long dress, if you will. But if they got into battle, this would pose a danger. It would hinder their mobility. Um, And so they would gather it up and they would tuck it inside their belt. To allow for, allow for mobility and, and flexibility, and so this would all go inside that belt that was so crucial. And again, this is a, a call here, I think, to readiness or preparedness. When it says having girded your loins with truth, uh, you may remember when uh, God delivered the nation of Israel from Egypt through the sac- or, or through the Passover celebration. Exodus chapter 12, 11, he said, eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. In other words, you're not supposed to be lounging around, kicking back, having supper together. No, you're going to eat this thing on the go. Like, you've got to be ready to move. Uh, Luke 12, 35 says, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. That was Jesus' exhortation. And then in 1 Peter 1.13, we're familiar with this because we just studied it. Prepare your minds for action and keep sober. Or it says, gird up the, the loins of your mind. And so again, it's the idea of readiness and preparedness. But notice he says, having girded your loins with truth. With truth. And I think that's the key word in this phrase or when it comes to understanding the belt, we need to understand this concept of truth. Now, Bible scholars will suggest that this is either objective truth, in other words, the objective truth of Christianity, in other words, doctrine, what what we believe as Christians, and others suggest that it's subjective truth, uh, in other words, it's the believer's sincerity or, or their truthfulness, their, their integrity. Well, whatever the truth that Paul was talking about, it is the integrating force in a believer's life. It holds everything else together. It's, it's, it's central, as I said, it's critical. Now, frankly, I don't think we have to make a choice whether it's objective truth or subjective truth. I think it's both. And I think the way that maybe we could best understand this girding your loins with truth is be a person of truth. Be a person of truth. In other words, you know the truth and you live the truth. That's what it means to have have having girded your loins with truth. You're a person of truth, you know the truth, and you live the truth. So let's talk about those two aspects of being a person of truth. Number one, you need to know the truth. And you can come with me, if you'd like, to the Old Testament. We know that the book of Psalms oftentimes not only exalts God, but it also exalts His word. And, and, it's, and often, it's, it's he, God's word is equated with truth, truth. For example, Psalm 19, verse 9, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightened in the eyes. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring the forever. And here it is, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. So Psalm 19 is is talking about the the Word of God and it's saying that the Word of God is true. Um, Psalm 119, uh, we're reading through that on Sunday mornings right now for the summer, Psalm 119, 142, Psalm 119, 142, again, this whole Psalm, every verse talks about the word of God in some way, Uh, Psalm 119, 142, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth, and right there in the same neighborhood, uh, verse 151, you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth, and then 160, the sum of your word is truth. And then in the New Testament, you remember that Jesus talked about uh, the truth. Um, John chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So he equates his word, right? with the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then John 17, 17, in the high priestly prayer, prayer, he he prayed for his disciples and us, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. So God's word is truth. When it says gird your loins with truth, it has to mean this in some way, shape, or form at some level, right? Right? And so the Bible, you've heard me say this before, the Bible is the only trustworthy standard for what we should believe and how we should live. I mean, there's a lot of things being said out there that, hey, you should believe this. You, you should live like this. And the, the point is you can't trust any of those other voices um, the word of God is the only trustworthy standard of what we're to believe and how we're to live. It reveals everything that God wants us to know so we can be who God wants us to be. You hear me pray that often. And so in order for us to live our lives in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord, we need to understand what the Bible teaches. And we need to have the the great doctrines of the faith firmly fixed in our minds and be fully convinced of them in our hearts. And so you think about what's referred to as systematic theology, that we have to have a grasp of the truth of God's Word, and it's, if it's helpful, put it into categories. And you can take all the truth in the Bible and, and really summarize it or categorize it into eight different categories, what it says about itself the Bible, bibliology. What does it say about God? That's what we know as theology. What does it say about Jesus, Christology? What does it say about the Holy Spirit? That's pneumatology. What does it say about man and sin? That's anthropology and harmadiology. And what does it say about salvation? That's soteriology. What does it say about the church? That's ecclesiology. And what does it say about future things? That's eschatology. And you say, well, that's just for Bible college students and seminary students and pastors. They need to know that. No, you need to know that. If you're going to be obedient to this command to gird up your loins with the truth, you need to understand, have a systematic understanding of the scriptures. In fact, I think every Christian should have a systematic theology textbook in their home as a reference when you come up against something and, hey, I'm not sure what, what to think about this, or what does the Bible say about this, and you can, you've got a good systematic theology, and they're usually about three or four inches thick, right? And, and you can look in the back and look up the index and say, okay, I need to learn about this, and so where do I find that? It's on page 364. I'm going to go and I'm going to study what the Bible says about that subject. It's sad to me that I think there's a lot of Christians who know, know more about politics or sports or or music or movies or, I'm going to get myself in trouble, essential oils (laughs) than they do about the Bible. I mean, some of you, I know, you could name every player of your favorite team and give me all their stats. You might be able to List all the characters of your, of your favorite saga, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, you, Harry Potter. You, put in the, you fill in the blank there. But if I said, hey, what are the 12 disciples again? What are their names? Uh, or, hey, what are the 10 commandments? Can, can you tell me the 10 commandments in order? See, sports stats and health facts won't help you defeat Satan. It might help you when you get a fire ant bite and you're looking for that Purification oil, that helps a little. But it's not going to help you defeat Satan. The point is we need to master the truth of God's word. We need to study this book, which will help us defend against Satan's number one tactic. What is is Satan's number one strategy or scheme as, as, he's, as it's referred to by Paul here, the, the schemes of the devil. What is his number one tactic? What is his number one scheme or strategy? One word. Deception. Or a simpler word is what, kids? Lie. Satan's a liar. According to John eight forty four, Satan is a liar. He, he's the father of all lies. And he's also a master deceiver. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul said, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So as a believer, if we know the truth of God's word, we will be able to see right through Satan's lies and the lies of those who are influenced and energized by him. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3 real quick. And again, this is a very familiar passage, but it's so foundational to our understanding of what does it mean to have our our loins girded with truth. Let me just say it this way. Adam and Eve did not have their loins girded with truth. Notice. What happened? Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Notice the, the how brash and brazen Satan is. He's using God's word against his people. Has God said, like, he just went there. It's not like, oh, I, don't want to get, I don't want to get around God's word, because if I get around God's word, that's where I get scared, because that kind of exposes my lies and my deception. No, he just went there. He said, God? did God say, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Now, notice, did she add a little bit to the word of God? Yeah, she wasn't faithfully quoting what God had said. He said, don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the garden or you'll die. He didn't say anything about touching it. So again, we've got to be really careful in how we hear God's word, how we read God's word, how we understand God's word. Make sure we're not adding something to it or leaving something out. Don't be loosey-goosey with scripture. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die well, what did he just do? What did he just do, kids? He just told a lie. That was like the ultimate fib right there. No, you're not going to die. God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Was that true or false? It's false. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. See, the bottom line in the battle against Satan and sin and temptation is who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe Satan's word, or are you going to believe God's word? That, that's that's how it all started. And guess what? That's how it's still going. Every time you get in a situation where you're tempted to sin, you have a que- one question. Ask yourself one question. Are you going to believe what Satan is telling you, or are you going to believe what God has said in his word? You have a very simple decision to make. And unfortunately, we typically believe the lies of Satan. Oh, this will be this, or this will do this, or... Or this is what will happen if you do this, and we somehow just kind of forget what God said. No, that's not what's going to happen. Satan is always going to try to make his way look and sound better than God's way. And his goal is to try to get us to believe him rather than God. And ever since the garden, Satan has been distorting and twisting scripture. And one of his most effective strategies for deceiving people is false teachers. And by the way, false teachers in the church. You can talk about fake news all you want out in the world, right? We We got way more issues with fake news in the church. And it's not fake news, it's fake theology fake teaching false teaching 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 13 for such men are false apostles deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 a couple more passages here we'll look at together 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1 But the Spirit explicitly says, "Is the Holy Spirit, that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits. You ready for this? You got your seatbelts on? And doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. See, demons are are constantly working behind the scenes, seeking to get preachers and teachers and professors and authors to misrepresent the Bible so their listeners or students or their readers will end up believing things that aren't true. They'll end up believing lies. False teaching doesn't come with a, a clearly marked warning label like danger, demonic doctrine handle with care. No, it it, it is subtly and cleverly disguised by the truth. And you know this to be true, that false teachers usually sprinkle just enough truth into their teaching that it's hard to pick out the error. Add to that the fact that they typically have a dynamic and and winsome, convincing, kind of compelling uh, personality. But even so, false teachers are demonically inspired, they're demonically instigated, and it's the character of those claiming to be wise and to be teaching the truth that often gives them away. James chapter 3, verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. So do the character check, right? You're like, oh, I'm not sure. Something kind of doesn't sound right, but do the character check. Now, that's usually a dead giveaway. That this guy's not speaking for the Lord, he's speaking for some demon. And this is why it's so vital for us to develop biblical discernment so that we can tell the difference between truth and lies or truth and error. One more passage here is 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, beloved, this is verse 1, do not believe every spirit, in other words, don't believe everything you hear, right, but test the spirits, To see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. In other words, just do the Jesus test. They have a biblical um, Christology. Um, If they don't confess Jesus is from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, talking about the spirit of God in us, is greater than Satan, more powerful than Satan. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world and the world listens to them. We, on the other hand, are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. Check it out. By this we know the spirit of truth And the spirit of error. So it's super important for us to know the truth of God's word. But it's also equally important that we live it out. So we've been talking about the objective truth, right? What does it mean to gird up your loins with truth? There's a lot of objective truth that we need to know in order to stand firm against Satan. But there's also this subjective side of truth. In other words, it's living the truth. We need to have a firm hold of the truth, but the truth has to have a firm hold on us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in that thick uh, ending to his commentary on Ephesians, called the Christian soldier, he's describing what it means to have your loins girded up in truth. He says this, it means a mastery of the truth. But it also means being mastered by the truth. I am held by the truth. This is the thing that binds me and holds me together and puts me on my feet and gives me vigor and strength and power. Or to express it particularly, it means that I do not merely look at the Bible intellectually and study it as it were, say, the works of Shakespeare, but rather that its truth gets hold of me and governs my whole attitude to the world, the flesh and the devil, and to everything that happens. That means nothing less than that we should know whom we believed and we should know what we believe. The girdle is truth. Don't get thrown off by that girdle thing. The girdle, the belt, is truth, looked on, understood, appropriated, and in such a manner that it governs the whole of my outlook in every respect. In other words, the Word of God governs my entire life. My my total existence is governed by the Word of God. Everything in my life comes under submission to the Scriptures, And I think what Lloyd-Jones was saying is that we need to apply the truth of God's Word to every aspect of our daily lives. We need to consistently put it into practice in the way we think, the way we talk, the way we act, which will lead to a life marked by truthfulness, a life of integrity, a life of honesty, of sincerity. In other words, there's no hypocrisy in your life. Let me put it this way. You're not living a lie. There's a lot of people in this world, and there's sadly people even within the church who are living a lie. In other words, you're sitting here tonight, and nobody else around you knows who you really are. You know And you're just kind of hoping nobody else figures it out. But you know you're sitting here and you're living a lie. You are not who you're presenting yourself to be to everyone around you. You're not what everybody else thinks you are. And you know that. You're living a lie. I think about David. And how his loins were not girded with the truth when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And ended up murdering her husband to cover up the fact that he impregnated his wife. And if you remember the story, he he hid that sin for over a year. He was living a lie for a year. And nothing went right. I mean, you could read Psalm 32, you could read Psalm 51. And, and, and he, he describes the price he had to pay for living a lie. And the challenge is once, once a lie gets in a believer's life, everything begins to fall apart and they, they, they live in fear of getting caught. Whereas a person of integrity, they have nothing to fear. They have a clear conscience and they can face all sorts of accusations from the enemy and they're like, I've got nothing to hide. Why? Because they don't don't have any loose ends kind of in their lives, just kind of flapping around that Satan or anyone else can grab a hold of and, 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 and take advantage of or use against them. It's what it means to be above reproach. And so in order to stand firm against Satan, we must know the truth and we must live a life of truthfulness. So again, I think both Objective truth and subjective truth are in view here, and the latter flows out of the former. You can't live a life of truthfulness if you don't know the truth. So that's where it starts. As we internalize God's word, it becomes part of us, which which enables us then to be a reliable, faithful, trustworthy person of integrity. So hopefully that helps you understand a little bit more what is the belt of truth. You say, okay, great, but so how do I practically put that on, cinch it up? How how do do I do that? Let me give you a couple thoughts. Number one, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? That's the very first step. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. And the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. So there may be someone here tonight that it's, it's all starting. You, you, you don't need to worry about the belt. You need to worry about Christ. And we're going to see this as we go through this, that putting on the armor of God is, is really um, uh, synonymous with putting on Christ. As it says in Romans thirteen fourteen. So come to Christ. That, that's the first step for some of you tonight is come to Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Surrender your life. Admit the fact that you're a POW, you're a prisoner of war, you're you're being held captive by Satan to do his will, and you don't want to be that anymore, you want to be a soldier of Christ. So you come to Christ. Number two, study the truth of God's word. Study the truth of God's word. Do what Kyle was talking about, what his parents did, right, every morning, read the Bible. Take your Bible out every day and, and just read the word of God. Immerse yourself in the word of God. I love when I'm sitting next to Kyle uh, and he's got his Bible open because that thing is all marked up. Have you ever noticed that? Any of you guys that know Kyle and been around Kyle? He, his Bible is all marked up. He's, he's got underlined belts. Now, I didn't know he had a belt in there, man. But he does. He draws pictures and all this stuff. But what, what does that mean? Well, he's been, he's been down that column. He's been on that page. He's been in that book because there's writing all over the place. So, so study God's word, have, have a quiet time, and then go beyond that. Like I said, if you don't have a systematic theology, I would recommend Biblical Doctrine by Richard Mayhew and John MacArthur. It's a big old white book. We've got them available in the Resource Center. You can get them online. But have that as a resource and, and start studying it. Start working your way through that. We just took a bunch of guys uh, in our church the last two years. We took them through that book together as just one textbook in our Mighty Men program. Why? Because we wanted them to know the truth of God's Word. And so we need to become so familiar with the Scriptures, with the real thing, that we can easily recognize anything that's counterfeit. It's like, oh, that's a lie. No, that's a lie. No, that's not true. Why? Because you know the truth. Thirdly, put into practice what you learn. James 1.22, do not be merely hearers of the Word who delude themselves right? If you think, oh, I'm sitting here, I'm taking in the word of God, and you walk out of here and do nothing with what you heard tonight, you are delusional. (laughs) That's what it means, right? Don't just hear the word, but be a doer of the word. Apply it. Put it into practice. Get involved in some discipleship relationship where you got somebody who's encouraging and holding you accountable. Go to a grow group. Grab those sermon application sheets that I provide every Sunday. You know, why? Because I want you to go home and I want you to just not go, oh, that was a good sermon. Thanks, Pastor. And then in one ear and out the other. No, think about it. Meditate on it. Figure out how, you're gonna, how that sermon should change your life. Number four, some of you may need to just come clean tonight. If you're living a lie, if you're that person that's living a lie, you're a hypocrite. Stop being a hypocrite. Take off the mask. Be open and honest with someone. For you, that's what would mean girding up your loins with truth. I mean, you've, get, you've been getting walloped. You're getting beat up on by Satan. Why? Because you're, you're a hypocrite. You're living a lie. Proverbs twenty eight thirteen. he who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses it and forsakes it will find compassion. Amen? So just come clean. Speak the truth. Be open. Be honest. And then lastly, I do think there's an element of prayer. Prayer plays a role here in putting on the armor of God. We know that because it talks about with all prayer and petition, that's how this whole section ends. We're going to get there eventually. So what do we pray? Well, how about this for a, for a prayer when it comes to the belt of truth? God, help me grow in my understanding of the Bible. Convince me of the truth of your word. Conform my life to the truth of your word so that I would be able to stand firm against Satan and not fall prey to the lies. That'd be a pretty good prayer to pray, right? Or how about this? God, expose any areas of hypocrisy in my life. Root out any areas where I'm living a lie. Help me to confess and forsake those things. Make me a person of integrity. So pray and gird up your loins with the truth. Father, thank you for this simple phrase and it's just so chunky. There's just a lot here. Um, and it really comes down to this. If this is the only one we really talked about, Lord, it's, it's knowing your word. And we know we're going to get to it again because it's your, the sword of the spirit, which is our weapon against Satan. And so, Lord, thank you for this time we've been able to spend together tonight. I pray you'd put this, uh, put this message into our hearts and our lives. Help us to, to live it out now. Uh, implement it. Put it into practice. Uh, by your grace and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.